welcome to SlayerFest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford, and here joining me for the 25th anniversary of Prophecy Girl, I have a very special guest. He is author of Into Every Generation, uh, Slayer is Born. It's an oral history of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He is a writer, journalist, pop culture critic. Evan Ross Katz. Hi, Evan. Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is the first time I'm doing an episode just me and another person, but I felt like the two of us have a lot of uh, big Buffy opinions. I mean, we mostly agree on on them, but we do have a lot to discuss. Um, first, I want to ask, uh, tell me everything about Sarah Michelle Gellar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. She's my relationship I mean, obviously with her has grown, but also like my relationship to her has changed in that like, you know, it's an unusual position to become friends with someone that you grew up idolizing. But it's funny how it's, she's just kind of a a friend to me now. For instance, when I got laid off from my job last week, like she sent me a text being like, are you okay? Just like, it's a very, um, I don't think of her as like the actress or the icon anymore. I mean, I can switch into that mode. Right. But mostly she's just like, I'm I'm proud to report. She's like an extremely kind and generous and uh, just on it kind of friend. When we had lunch, when I was in Los Angeles, she had to leave lunch to go pick up her daughter from school. Like she's just a very attentive person and very present, uh, both for her friends and for her family. And everything that I think, any fan of hers would imagine her to be. I am glad to say that in my experiences with her, she's been nothing but that. That's, I mean, that's so nice to hear, right? Like I, on a, like, you know, I just had, uh, we announced our angel co-hosts and Summer Bischel from the Magicians agreed to be a co-host. And I told her like, this is weird. Cause like my tattoo on my arm is from the Magicians. Um, And yeah, it's kind of been like, yeah, I mean, like, of course I still stand, but it's like, oh, we're we're friends, you know? Like, you just kind of, like, have that transition at some point, right? Right. And also, especially with her, with Buffy, for many reasons, the most obvious being it was 25 years ago. And then also, I just think that, like, there are experiences with Buffy that she keeps to herself, that are hers to have, that I often find now it's like, Buffy is the least interesting thing to talk to her about. Um, She admits this, and I write about this in the book, but like she doesn't remember much of the experience on the show. And luckily when I was writing the book, it was timed just serendipitously where she was doing a rewatch with her kids during quarantine. So her memory was a little sharper, but, and I don't think this is unique to Sarah. It's like, I don't remember the shit I was doing 25 years ago. And so it's funny now it's like our relationship. It's like, we talk housewives. She's a huge survivor fan. So we love to text about survivor, but like we never talk about Buffy unless it's like a Buffy stars come up in the news for something. And then we'll go back and forth. But otherwise it's like every question that I have about Buffy that I'd want to go to her was either answered in my interviews or it's been answered in the past and other ones. So it's like, I just feel like there was every stone has been turned when it comes to Sarah Michelle Gellar and Buffy to me. I mean, yeah, that I try when I interview like anyone from the shows, I try to make it like a little about Buffy and then like ask them what they're reading, ask them what they've been watching and shit like that. And I mean, and I mean, you interview even like way more celebrities than I do. And I feel like that's important to know when you're interviewing people, right. That you have to be able to like also be normal, right? Like, and bring up just like everyday shit because people don't always want to talk about the thing they did a hundred years ago. Um, 
And that's true. I've noticed with a lot of them about the memory. Like, I remember <laughs> I asked Kali Rosha, who played Helfrek, I asked her about, I was like, oh, did you ever see the finale? And she was like, oh, I love the musical. And I was like, oh, no, no, that's not the finale. <laughs> like, you know, and it was a job to them. So I would have several instances like that during interviews where like they would be referencing the wrong thing. And I had to sort of make the decision in real time whether to correct them. And <laughs> I got to the point where I was like, OK, we'll just omit this because I'm not a big on like correcting people about yeah. their own experiences. But yeah, I think that like. And, and, and not for nothing, too, this was a cast of that revolved a lot, right? It's like we, you know, cycled through so many characters. And, and so a lot of them, you know, they were on set for specific instances in which tensions might have been higher. Or, like, my, my sense is, like, the first two years especially were, like, really wonderful. And so if you're someone that, like, you know, I'm thinking of... Uh, I forget the actress's name, but Jenny Callender, I'm sure your experience on the set of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was very different than someone like Claire Kramer's who came in, you know, in right. the middle era. So yeah, it's it's very, it's a lesson, not just when it comes to Buffy, but just like with actors or anyone who you're searching for nostalgia from, oftentimes it's like the work you can do on that front is a lot more meaningful than like getting in conversation with them about it. That's what I found. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. It's like us super fans are going to remember, you know, the name of an episode or what the episode is from what Buffy's wearing. But like, of course, she's not going to remember that because that was like her job. Totally. And like, also, it's like, I remember like years ago, I, I did some piece about like all of her various hair looks and like I wanted to like interview and her and ask her all these questions about the hair. And, and we chatted briefly and I was like, her perception of her hair is not going to match mine because to me, it's like, you know, name the season, name the episode. I'm going to tell you like why this look is more iconic than that one. It's just her hair. Like she's right. just not, she's not on that same wavelength. So the more that I, the more I treat her like a normal human being, and this is not just Sarah, but in general, and yeah. you alluded to this, it's like the more I think you get out of a person. Like you said, it's like, what are you listening to? What are you watching? Tell me about, give me an access to like who you are as a human being. The Buffy memory stuff, if, if that's available, great. But that to me, uh, that was not the most important ingredient I found. Yeah, yeah. Even when um, I had Ming-Na went on, it like in the middle of lockdown, right? And I remember saying to her, don't worry, this isn't like a Comic-Con interview. And she went, oh, thank God. <laughs> and like afterwards, she was like, oh, I like that you didn't just ask me about the show. Like I hadn't thought that I was doing that. And once like, you know, Ming-Na Wen like saying that to me, like, oh, that was really great. I was like, oh, fuck, I have to remember to do that more often because like I just had someone compliment who someone who's like a big celebrity. And like, that's when I was like, shit, I need to make sure that's what I'm doing a lot of times. But then there's, you know, like you and I both interviewed Stacey Abrams. It's like, that's someone that like is a big name, but also like she's a fan. So it's more like, yes, you can ask her, you know, questions specific about the show and she'll have answers because she's a super fan on top of everything else that she does. Totally. Um, but so we're here to talk Prophecy Girl. It's the 25th anniversary of this episode. Um, I know that you do like this episode as well, right? It's so good. Yeah, I feel like um, outside of maybe Angel, the episode Angel, this is the first episode that I really feel like is Buffy at its, like, finding its groove, like, full tilt. I think there's something about that slow-mo shot um, of her killing the vampires uh, in the beginning that sort of establishes the fact that this is not going to be a normal episode and something that we see in seasons to come, which is that, like, Joss steps up his game for a finale. Yeah, yeah, and, like, 
I was thinking that I was like, they love destroying a set in a finale. And like, I mean, they don't quite destroy the library, but like they rough it up a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And even that. They'll need a new roof by the end. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> even, yeah. Even that you mentioned the like slow-mo scene that feels like we're at Buffy, like the Buffy we get, like she's confident in like, ugh, whatever. Like she's smiling. She's being a little shitty. Um, it, it is funny to think that she's like, wow, three. And it's like, oh my God. In later seasons, she'll kill like 10 at a time. Like, Right. But also I think that's like, and I've said this before, we were talking about Welcome to Hellmouth. A lot of those changes are character development. It's not just like, oh, we're going to make her suddenly be able to slay 10 at a time. It is like, as the show goes on, she can face bigger and bigger threats. And I think that's like really good writing of the character, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you as the challenges come forward to her more and more in the later seasons she also recognizes how to utilize those around her so it's like uh in you know in the beginning i think that they paint the scooby gang almost out to be like the people that cause the problem you know what i mean like there's so many episodes in which it's like you know xander brings about the praying mantis or willows on the web and brings about moloch but like i think what you get to towards, I don't know if it's the end of season one or season two, it's like Buffy starts to recognize the powers of these people. And this is even before Willow's like full-blown witch, yeah. but she's just like, I can bring these people along and they can help me in the fight. In addition to the fact that, as you mentioned, I feel like her own understanding of her skill set and like what she can do. And also just, and this happens a lot with season three with the with her training with Giles. And then again in season five with the training with Giles, where it's like she understands that like her power is not just in her physical prowess, but it's like there are other skills that she can develop that can help her be better in the fight. Yeah, yeah, that's yes, very well said. Uh you must be a writer. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, and even uh Cordelia here, I feel like, you know, we had invisible um out of sight. Out of, out of mind, out of sight. I always call it Invisible Girl, but that's not the name of the episode. Um, I did like a, a little TikTok for that and my editor literally had to say, Ian, it's not actually called Invisible Girl. And I was like, shit, you're right, it's not. I, why do I call it that? Um, so take my card away from me. Um, <laughs> but even Cordelia, like in the previous episode we get, we learn that she has more depth and they're giving her more depth. And like this episode does a good job of, like, I mean, she comes in and saves Willow and Miss Calendar. Like, I, I do think we're any of the character changes just all feel organic. And I think that's a thing that we love about this show is like, we get the depth and it's, we build upon the depth. It's not just like, here you go. Um, because I was talking about this before and I'm curious what you think, like, you know, Cordelia's arc spans two shows. So does Wesley's. But for me, Wesley almost feels like a rewrite rather than a, like, I don't know. What do you think? I think they both feel like a rewrite to me. Yeah. I and I'm not a huge Angel fan. I I I know that will make some people feel a certain <laughs> type of way. It's just not the show for me. Um, but I feel like the Cordelia of Buffy is present in the pilot episode of Angel. Um, but there's and and you know you could argue well the character grew up and so she changes. But they both felt like uh, very intentional rewrites. But what I like about the Cordelia moment here the one that you reference and sort of where they go from here is there are so many limitations to the cordelia that's presented in season one by way of like places to go right mm. so like frenemy is a hard sort of uh it's it, it's it's difficult to waffle between because i feel like on television often t more 
goes to enemy and then you kind of wonder, well, then why would they be friends? And what's great about this moment that you just spoke of and then what we see in season two is like they create tethers for Cordelia to the Scooby gang and there are consequences that come forward in seasons two and seasons three by way of like her popularity suffering as a result of her true self coming out, which is the fact that she's actually like a very sweet and kind and all of the the antithesis of who many people believe her to be. So I really appreciate the fact that though it took us 12 episodes, although I don't, is she in every episode in season one? I feel like she's not in one of them. But anyway, although she's kind of this mode in season one, I like the fact that we like went places with Cordelia quickly and it was established here that like they were going to take that character for like on a ride. Yeah. And I like that we established that if they need help, Cordelia will like step it up. Right. Because like, like you said, in the beginning, she doesn't feel like a character that would step up and be like, okay, yeah, I'll help you. But like in this, and I always think of like the moment in Helpless when like, she's being jokey, and then she realizes that Buffy's like actually upset. You know, and it's like, okay, yeah, I'll drive you home, of course. Like, And I feel like that's a huge credit to the writers here, which is that, like, I think that Cordelia was conceived very flatly. Actually, no, it's a testament to charisma as well. Yeah. But it's like a combination of the writers and charisma, which is that, like, this this seemingly one-note character was really given a remarkable amount of depth, especially into season three. Um, I don't know. I feel like I'm just always going to be bitter that she didn't stay around on Buffy. That's, like, always going to be my right <laughs> um i mean i do understand like it's funny i had to get mostly new co-hosts for angel because so many of my co-hosts didn't for buffy didn't watch all of angel um but i do like i just love her on angel so much and once they realize that they needed to use her more the show gets to shine more um but yeah i'm always bitter that she did not get to stick around for all of that but that's another um podcast so we get the earthquake god we're only at the beginning we get the earthquake which is like a sign of the apocalypse um and i like that we continue with that like anytime there's an earthquake that's like a bad sign right so we get the earthquake and giles is reading something from the codex but we don't we get like we wait on the reveal then we get the master who is a big drama queen i love like for me I, when he's like, glory, blah, and then he's like, what do you think, 2.5? Like, he's such a, like, like, monster queen. I love it. I love, like, that about him. (laughs) I love the Master. I wish we would have gotten more of the Master, because outside of this being a short season, he's not featured in every episode, so it's like, you get especially shortchanged on him, and because he was underground, he doesn't get to come face-to-face with anyone outside of his minions. And so I thought there could have been... I mean, I on the one hand, I like the fact that he only has this one encounter with Buffy. But I do think, like, if I were doing the rewrite on season one, God forbid, I do think there's a world in which it's, like, he comes above ground and they get a few episodes of, like, a cat and mouse or, or some sort of, like, you know... It's kind of like how she comes face-to-face with the mayor a few times before they finally face off. I think it could have used that, especially because uh, Mark Metcalf and Sarah Michelle Gellar had really fun chemistry in their one scene together. Um, but yes, I definitely appreciated the fact that uh, even from Welcome to the Hellmouth, the show understood uh, that it, and this is something that held true with all of the big bads, 
except for Adam, really, but where they, they understood that like the big bads were not just going to represent evil. They were yeah. going to have their own wants and needs and some of them funny and some of them sad. And with Glory, it's like she cares about her Prada dress because she wants to look nice. And it's like all of these characteristics, um, I was going to say endeared you to them in, in a way, like, and that was kind of the point. Yeah, no, yeah. And like, you know, I think of Marvel, which I'm a huge fan of, but they always have like a villain problem. The villains aren't, that like interesting they're just kind of like a big bad guy and like i don't know like i'd rather take glory or the master over that any day right like totally i want to enjoy watching the bad guy even if they're like you know because glory reasonably she doesn't really have like she's super powered and super evil there's not like a in between there i don't need like a oh they might be good they could be straight up evil but like make them fun you know totally yeah so we move on and we reintroduce Miss Calendar, which only for this rewatch did I realize, and probably when we recorded for the podcast, who knows, it was so long ago, that Miss Calendar is only in two episodes in this first season. Like in my brain, I always remember her being more a part of the Scoobies after her first episode, but it's only two episodes she's in. Um, but I like that we introduce like both, like both of her appearances in season one instill her as like, she's smart and like helpful. And like in the know. And I yeah. feel like they definitely needed more characters that were like in the know of like the demon world and being able to be like, yes, that's a vampire. I'm not shocked, you know? Yeah. And I honestly, I can't help but wonder like why they didn't explore. I mean, I, I guess I can understand why because it was a teen show, but it's like you got this like really fully realized, like, you know, budding relationship between the two of them. And then outside of Olivia, who kind of just comes and goes a few times without really ever being like mentioned they never ever again oh yes the and then the joyce moment but they never ever explore giles's like not even just romantic life just like his life yeah. life like you know they get into like the ripper stuff a, a little bit but like i just was surprised that being that it was so fruitful the first time around with jenny and also you know anthony being such a capable actor i wish that they would have done more even if it was just like a few dates or something but um, yeah, yeah, I always think with Olivia, it felt like her character is so weird, right, Evan? Because it's like, she's just kind of there. I don't know what the deal is. It's so <laughs> bizarre. And it was, like, cool that it was like, yes, we're showing you, yes, Giles fucks. Like, yes, he's, like, hanging out with this, like, hot older, like, hot, not older, because they're probably not that far from our age. But, like, at the time, it was like, they were, like, the older ones, and, like, I like the idea of them being like, yes, this is an adult who has like a relationship with this woman and they're like casual. Like that's interesting. But then she just is in three episodes and never talked about it again. Right. It's like, I could have dealt with like, okay, she comes once a season yeah. and her and Giles have like crazy sex and she happens to witness some crazy thing that is just going on. Like, I think that could have been a fun conceit of like, Oh, it's the Olivia episode. She's in yeah. town. She's going to witness something crazy. But instead, yeah, we get this, uh, sort of, it just feels like they never threaded the needle on Olivia, but I, I'd rather have her than not have her, but, um, justice for Olivia. Yeah. Yeah. There, and Buffy was usually better at that, right. Than like just having like, normally it's like they would address like, oh, you know, the character died or the character, like they would right. like say something like as to why that character isn't there. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very weird. Um, but so we move on to, God, where are we in my notes? Um, oh, we have the Scoobies leaving class. Xander is shooing Willow away. He wants to um, tell Buffy his feelings. 
Evan, I need to know, what? how do you feel about this scene? <laughs> Which one? The one with uh, Xander and Willow or the one with Xander? Xander and Buffy when he's like... In the, he... in the classroom. Yeah, in the, when they're outside on the campus and he's like telling her how he feels. Got it, got it. I was jumping heads when he's in the classroom and Willow comes in and, but, okay, yes. Um, I really do like this scene, actually. And I, I and again, talk about things that, like, I'm glad they explored, but I'm glad they put a lid on. Yes. I'm glad that, like, we got the Xander is in love with Buffy plot, like, a clear ending for it. And I'm glad that we were able to move into season two and, like, push past that very quickly. And I honestly like, too, the fact that it, like, remains a joke on the show for years to come that it's like Xander was, you know, at one point in love with her. But I, I think that what is very clear, and maybe this is all in retrospect, but it's like Xander wasn't in love with Buffy. He had a crush on he had a crush on her, you know, and and crushes happen all the time. We get crushes on professors when we're in school and, you know, we get crushes looking across the platform on the subway. And it doesn't mean that they're like meant to be something. Right. And so I, I like the fact that he admits, like, I have these feelings for you. And she's just like, I don't. And I, and I really like the way she delivers that, which is like, um, it's it's not that she's not recognizing that he does. It's just like, she never conceived it that way at all. Um, and I feel like she's very, like, classic Buffy, but like, she's very respectful, but like stern, which is that yeah. like, I feel how I feel. Um, I had no idea you felt this way, but nothing's happening. Nothing's gonna happen. Yeah, and even, like, when he's being a dick and he's like, I guess you gotta be undead, blah, 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 and she's like, that's really harsh. And she's, that's like, really still calm but stern. And, like... And it is really harsh. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing. It's, like, I... Especially you're watching this, I'm like, God, he's such a dick about it. Like, he can't even be, like, all right, I'm upset, I want to leave. Like, okay, that's fine, but, like, he's gotta, like, get in some jabs, and it's, like... But this is what we love about Buffy, right? Because you're right, she does... The way she delivers it, and also it's like, I get he's a 16-year-old boy who just confessed to a friend that he's got feelings that are more than friend friendly and it didn't go well. And so I find his reaction to be very authentic in the sense of like, he's pouting like a little baby and that makes sense. That is, that is my like, <laughs> not that I do it all the time, but that's like my only, that's my defense of early season Xander that it tracks right for like a boy that a like straight boy that age that like does kind of track the like shitty way he reacts to things um right because he is supposed like you said he's supposed to be like 16 and then 17 and like i, I wasn't the nicest teenager either uh <laughs> which is funny too to think about the fact that you know in season six with the whole you know wedding the wedding that was not he's what he would have been 22 yeah. or something so it's so funny and this is the funny thing about like buffy is that like by season seven they feel like they're 40 um <laughs> and i don't know like when that happens but it's just funny to think about the fact that like they're still kids at the end of the show but they like i don't know if it's because of buffy taking on the maternal role with dawn or what have you but like they feel like full-fledged adults so it's funny going back to season one and being like Oh, yeah, they're 16. <laughs> yeah, and, like, right, you forget that because it's not that anyone looks old on the show, but they don't look, like, 19. And, right. like, so it does feel like, oh, these are 30-year-olds. Yeah, of course he's getting married. But when you think about it, yeah, like, oh, a 22-year-old? Like, hmm, okay, that makes sense that he might get cold feet and chicken out. Um, yeah, and, like, Angel does that, too, with Cordelia. Like, you know, we've been going through season one, and there's an episode where they go to, like, 
a club slash bar. And it's like, she's not even 21 yet in season one of Angel. She would be 18, maybe 19. Um, but they definitely try to mature them up. Um, and I'm not sure if it's just like a victim of the writing because like the writing was a little bit more mature and adult for these characters. And I, I use victim, but I don't mean like it was bad writing. I just mean like they always wrote them pretty mature and like gave them such nuance and were so used to like teens not having a lot of that or if it's or if it was like a conscious choice i always like wonder about that because even though they're like freshmen in college in in season four it doesn't they feel older already right yeah 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 without question and then especially by season five it's like they're getting ready to go into like an old age home (laughs) um and i do think you might be right about the like buffy taking on the role with dawn that does immediately make her feel like she's the mom and so like you just think older because like yeah in season seven when they're like joking like oh like she's old it's like no she is 21 maybe 22 like right (laughs) um but so we get we get that scene i i i i mean i have so many notes here that are just like sarah's delivery here is so good but just she's i feel like this episode they really gave her a lot to work with um so we get we get all of that. We get Cordelia um, with her new man. Um, we see that they're like cute together, and then like you know we just basically get that for so he could be a character that dies. Um, because they do reference that in season two when she talks about her trauma, she's like, "No one's talking about my trauma. I got over it." And is like looking at and like Giles like pats her on the shoulder. So I like that we like do go back to that. Um, we get and her that's saying, real. Right? Yeah, it is. Like, this would be fucking traumatic, especially for a 16-year-old. Like, um, And not for nothing, and the timing of this conversation is not lost on me, but the idea of having to then go back to that school every day where you walked in on your then-boyfriend and his friends, who are ostensibly your friends to some level um all brutally murdered that's yeah it's like get cordelia some grief counseling right get yes. some grief counseling yes. get the school some grief counseling they should have had like sunnydale high needed like 10 grief counselors on staff at all yes. times um yeah we get this cute moment of like her saying like willow i love your outfit and she's like no you don't what do you want like i love i love that and i kind of like the little bit of like budding friendship we get with the two of them yes. that does kind of like carry on even though willow kind of doesn't like her they still like have this anya and willow type relationship like willow's the one that's calling cordelia in season two of angel and like you know she's the one that comes to town to tell them about buffy um so i do like their dynamic um we then cut to buffy she enters the bathroom there's blood coming out of the faucet she goes to the library to warn giles and what does she hear her giles and angel discussing evan well, it's uh, not looking so good for Buffy. It's uh, looking like the end of times, uh, specifically for her. I have to say this is in my top five favorite scenes on the show of all time. And one of the only scenes I could get, when I asked Sarah for the book, if there were any scenes that she could go back and watch and be like, wow, I really nailed that. This was the one that she referenced, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's such a good scene for so many reasons, many of which are the writing, many of which are the acting, but I just feel like 
And this is something that I think Sarah Michelle Gellar particularly excels at, which you see here, is that you're able to like move through so many emotions with her, which is like both her dexterity as an actress, but her ability to portray what it's like to be 16. And I feel like the metaphor of the show never comes through more strongly than in this season, because the whole thing is it's like, and they joke about this at times, like her mom is like, oh, it feels like the end of the world. And it's like, no, but it is the end of the world. You get that in this scene, as well as the triangulation of two men who love her so much in different ways, And mind you, we're 12 episodes in and Angel's only been in like, what? I think like five episodes before this, but it all makes sense. And then also like that dynamic between Giles and Angel is so interesting because it's like, they're two men who love the same woman, but in different ways, obviously, but like they both have this vested interest in her. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's the scene. Right, it's, and I, I can remember... I, I didn't see season one when it aired because I started in season three. And I remember when I got the DVDs for this, like zooming through it and just being so floored by her performance here. And like, I had already been, I don't remember when the DVDs came out, but I think it was like season four or five when season one finally came out. And I just remember even then, and like, you know, Sarah delivers episode upon episode, but this being like, oh shit, this is so good. And like you said, it's, this is the show, right? This is the metaphor. This is the show. She literally says, I'm 16. I don't want to die. And like... And the way the ju- she says it. Right? I was going to say, the journey of her emotions of she's fucking furious. She's laughing. Then she's furious. That and then laugh. she's just like... So like, the way she delivers I'm 16 and don't want to die is so defeated, right? She's just like, but I don't want this. And like, that's like a kid. That is... that Like, she delivers it like a 16-year-old. Um, And like, fuck, she's so good. And... Like you said, it's important to be like, both of these men love her, but Angel almost gets a little bit more defensive and Giles is just nothing but like, I feel terrible, right? Right, and also it's like, they're both much older than her and they're both men. They don't know what it is to be a 16 year old girl moving through life. And then on top of that, to get this this information, um, which is like, it's a prophecy for, it's called a prophecy for a reason. Like it will happen. It's not like, oh, you might die. It's you will die. And so I sort of like that juxtaposition to the idea of like, as much as like they're both, you know, Angel's a demon, Giles is a demon expert. Neither of them can understand what she's going through, despite the fact that they know and understand so much of her that no one else can. This is one of those things that even they cannot connect with her on. And I, and it, it isolates her in such a way, which is explored later on in the show, like the isolation of being a slayer, being the chosen one. And I feel like it comes through, especially in this scene. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And like the, yeah, I think Sarah is a very, I think Sarah and Allison are two of the best criers on the show. Um, And like, they cry very differently. Like Allison kind of like, gets the upset face and Sarah does like the blank face the like I'm so upset I can't even emote but tears are coming down and both work for me every time like both of them you know this is like I feel like this is the first of many scenes where it's like oh Sarah Michelle Gellar needed a fucking Emmy for this show and this is like the first one <laughs> yeah it, it's troubling that uh <laughs> that did not happen but yes I I concur the only I, I love a SMG cry I do not love an SMG laugh I feel like she is that's the one thing she's uh does not excel at but crying is definitely 
she's got many tools in her toolbox and that is a particularly forceful tool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would co-sign that. Yes. Um. There's like that season five moment. Oh, it's, um, she's in the kitchen and it's something involving harmony in season five. And she has to like fake laugh. And then Riley has to like join in with her. And he's also, Mark is not a great laugh as well. <laughs> now Sarah will tell you, she hates to laugh like on screen. Like she just, but, but it's just funny. Cause it's like, uh, yeah, it just doesn't, it's like the one thing where I'm like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just thinking of that scene. It's like that scene. And then in season six, when her and Giles are laughing about them. Yes. His yes. laugh is good. His laugh is good, but yeah. <laughs> that laugh also goes on for a long time. I could just feel Sarah being like, okay, cut, cut, cut. <laughs> are we done yet? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we get, she, she quits. She throws her cross. She says she quits. Both of them are kind of like, unfortunately, that's not how that works. And she's like, that's it. You do it. I'm quitting. She exits the library, um, and we get, she then, oh god, now I, oh, then she, like, goes home. She has her moment with Joyce, which I do, like you said, it's, Joyce basically says what's going on, right? Like, Joyce is like, oh, I know when you're a teen, it feels like the end of the world. Oh, like, is it written somewhere you can't go to the dance? Do whatever you want. Like, I, I, it, I feel like me describing it, it sounds ham-fisted, but, like, right, it's not in watching it. It, like, is like, yeah. I thought you were gonna be like, no, Ian, it is hamfist. <laughs> no, no, I, I definitely, I mean, I just the more choice, the better is what I say. <laughs> um, like, give me everyone wanted like the Ripper spinoff. I'm like, give me like Joyce the art dealer spinoff, <laughs> art dealer, art collector. I think collector, whatever never, she is. I'm never too sure. Uh, I do love that Joyce buys her the dress, and I love that they try to really make them like. She's like, we can't afford this. It's like, you have a very nice house in like Southern California. <laughs> yes. But also not for nothing too. It is such a gorgeous dress. It is such a gorgeous dress. I love it. I was going to ask you because you are a fashion expert as well, because I love it, but I'm like, eh, I dress like a pop punk teen. I was curious what you thought of the dress. You do oh, like it. Oh, it's stunning. It's so, um, it's very timeless, which I really, really like. I love the silhouette. It's like, because she's going, is it? She's going to prom, right? I think they, they do, it's kind of like nondescript, right? It's just like which is a, strange, right? Because she's a sophomore. It's like what dance are they going yeah. to? But anyway, needless to say, I don't know if it's um, you know, the correct aesthetic given the occasion. But right. that's also something that like I am not like I don't you know, uh, concern myself with too much. But no, I just think it's it's gorgeous, and I think it holds up really nicely. And it would look like you could put that dress like on a runway today and it would be perfectly at home. It's just, it's great. It's funny though, because you get the impression in the early episodes that Joyce is like ultra conservative and don't get me wrong. It's not like a like slutty dress per se, but it's a very adult dress. Like it's a very like woman, not girl dress. So mm. it's interesting that like Joyce was like, here, put this on. When I thought Joyce would have been like, you know, here's a coat, like wear this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you remember, I don't know if this was like a Jersey thing, but I feel like when we were <clears throat> teens, there was like a trend of like prom dresses that were like a halter top and then like mm -hmm. a long. And I remember like all the girls in my class wearing that and thinking that was like the peak of fashion at the time. <laughs> right. Were they wrong? Um, um, but yeah, no, I love this dress. I have always loved it. And I, 
the imagery that we get, like every image of her in that with the leather coat and the fucking like bow and arrow, I think is just like super iconic. Um, and like, aside from the red pants and black top, I would say this is like one of the other like outfits people think of when they think of Buffy, right? Yes. Um, especially like her in the tunnel holding the crossbow with like her outfit on. I feel like that's like a very so good. And then we got her rewearing it, I think, for the twenty third anniversary, which I love. And was that and really? I think the it dress? looks really great with the with the black leather coat as well. Yes, I love the black leather jacket on it. I was I wasn't sure if that was a, a Ian is whatever um, hot topic y part of me, but was it really that dress that Sarah put on? I was trying to compare them and I was like, I'm not sure. She said it was in the caption, right? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Huh. Did they, they look different to you? They look just like slightly different, but also like, I know that, you know, when something's on camera being lit for a set, it like might look a little different. I'll get us an answer. Okay. (laughs) Cause it looks, the one that she wore looked like it is all white. And this one, like, the bottom is, like, beige-ish. It's, like, creamy, right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, yeah. No, I have to say, but on a side note, my favorite Buffy outfit is the, from Hush. It's the blue, like, that, um... Oh, yeah! Like turquoise bizarre, like, asymmetrical and, yeah. top, and the skirt is, like, it's so weird, and I love it. Evan, I love that that's, like, the outfit you love, because I do love that outfit. I think about it a lot, because it's... It is weird, but it works, right? Yes. Well, and I feel like, and you've interviewed them too, a lot of the costume designers liked dressing her because she looked so good in, like, most things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Which, what? No, I'm. I, it's like, she looks good. Yeah, she looks good in so many things. And there's just, like, it's like her... Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker is another example. It's like, you can put anything on, but it's like, the weirder Buffy got stylistically, which happened, like, it, it wasn't season-specific. There were, like, many just... It was just outfit-specific. But the yeah. weirder she would get, like, the the happier I was. So, like, I loved, like, the hat era. She had several different, like, hat eras where she was, like, in that. And then there was, like, sunglasses were really prominent in the early seasons, which I loved. Like, the chunky sunglasses... Obviously, we've talked about like all the leather that she that she does, but yeah, I I I love Buffy style. I I just think it's unfortunate that they lose sight of Buffy style once Cynthia leaves in in and seven. I think gets like wacky in terms of she just loses like her characteristic fashion. Um, a conversation for another day. <laughs> um, so we get she puts on the dress. It looks very nice on her. We then get Xander calling Willow or. Oh, we forgot to talk about the Xander Willow scene in the classroom when she, like, sees him and they, like, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's super important uh, for many reasons, but especially in building uh, the evolution of Willow's sort of self-empowerment, which is going to be a plot that, you know, through to the end of the series, one of the great things about the character of Willow and, and her plot is it really is a very seven season long journey that Willow undertakes that really has nothing to do with magic at the end of the day. And what I love about this scene so much is uh, you witness Willow beginning to understand that she doesn't have to acquiesce as a human being. And whether that be to, you know, you see it with uh, in season three when she's like, I'm not going to do your homework, Percy. Um, and you, But you, you get a glimpse of it here, which is just like, I'm not going to be the girl that's waiting around uh, 
for you when you get rejected by the the apple of your eye. She's like, I'm a prize to someone too. And I just, but it's also like, she's figuring that out, right? Because it's almost like, you almost get the impression that like Willow would be proud of herself after this moment of being like, like she'd almost like take a deep breath and be like, okay, I did it. Like I stood up for myself. Yeah. Because it's, it's a new concept for her, right? It's like when we see the softer side of Sears moment in the pilot, it's like, Willow's used to just like taking it, right? And this is one of those first moments where you're like, she, uh, she's got a backbone, and and she's not just gonna be a pushover. And 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 I like the fact that that's something that is developed here, and then we kind of see we move through it as the series progresses. You know, I that's a really good point because early season Willow would have probably just said yes, right? Like if this was a second episode of Buffy, she would have said, okay, we'll go together, and been like bummed that she was the backup, but would have done it. Um, and you are right. Like her journey is a full, I was talking about this with actually one of my coworkers who like, I don't know why we just recently learned that she also loves Buffy. Cause like, you know, believe it or not, you and I, like we do talk about other things other than Buffy. (laughs) Uh, and like, we just learned that. And she was talking about how she was like, the thing I love about Willow is that she's a co-main character by the end of the show. And I was like, yeah, like that's really important to like, Willow's growth on the show makes her become the second main character, right? Like she has, I mean, Xander, of course, is a main character as well, but Xander doesn't, there's not as much there, I would say, right? Yeah, I mean, Xander just doesn't have as much uh, character development in the same sense that Willow does. And also just Willow's like, there's so many journeys that Willow's on. I mean, even just thinking about the journey of her sexuality, which is that like, discovering and coming into her sexuality and then finding your first love and then losing that love. And then what is a second love? It's like, there's just so much there. Whereas with Xander, it's a little bit more linear as far as like falls in love with demon for weird reasons that are never quite explained (laughs) has a commitment issue. Like, yeah, the Xander plot's just a little, there's just less there. There's less depth. But as you say, it's like Alison Hannigan is a terrific, terrific actor nicholas brendan is not so thankfully i think that it's good that it was in the hands of such a capable talent <laughs> i do think the the scenes they give him i think he hits his beats i think yes. I, I mean i think anthony stewart head is probably is the best like man um like the, the the best like male actor on the show i would say probably right him and seth green oh wow you would say see i would say oh anthony my stewart god and james marsters <laughs> complicated um so, uh james marsters in seasons two and three absolutely okay huh all right uh i do i mean oz is my forever buffy crush but like i just don't feel like he there's like that much that they like give him to do they certainly could have given him more but i just feel like what he's able to do with that character and the fact that there's just no other character like oz I mean, I guess it's like, yes, maybe I'm being a little to compare him with up against Anthony Stewart head is like, okay, there's a clear winner here. <laughs> I just really think Seth Green's performance is like, it's just so perfect. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's like the payoff of all, all the Willow stuff in season four works because you understand the longing between the two of them and how much he wants her, but can't be with her. And anyway, <laughs> I, I do think Seth Green, it's like weird that he never got like he got like more silly wacky roles after this and never got like a little bit of like I mean maybe he I guess I haven't followed his career that much but he never got like a more dramatic turn than he did like here it feels right. like 
Um, and he does no, have I, range. I, I mean, and I explored this in the book, but it's like, I just, I always wonder had Oz come back in a non-romantic capacity. Um, I feel like there could have just been a lot more to do with Oz, whether or not he paired off with somebody else or, or, or who knows, but it's like, I wish that we would have gotten more from Oz. And, you know, I guess it is a good point that like Oz is so far removed from Seth Green. Um, and so like, that is like a, a credit to his acting that like, he plays this, like the calm, straight, cool, whatever. And like Seth Green is more like wacky hyper guy. Um, okay. But then, then we get, um, then we do get the scene of Willow and Cordelia, which I was wondering, uh, what's the timeline here? Cause like Willow and Cordelia are like at school going to meet, you know, her boyfriend and the friends and Buffy is at home trying on her dress. And I was like, but it's completely daytime. Um, but like, whatever, um, we get, God, I'm like looking at my notes. I do. So Miss Calendar and Giles are doing research together also. And I do like the moment of, and her delivery here is pretty good when she's like, the only thing she's having trouble with is that Buffy's a slayer because she's so tiny. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes and, like, sense. It does. It does. Uh, and so then we get, it's like Buffy kind of gets her confidence here, right? Or is like embracing the prophecy. Um, and I do like this scene where she goes to see, like she comes in while he's saying, no, I'm not going to make Buffy fight the master. He's telling Miss Calendar. And then she like knocks him out. So that way she can go. I don't love, we do get like a very silly, uh, like she punches him and he's almost like, huh? and then like stiffens up and then fall. It's like a very cartoon, um, but whatever. Uh, and I, I like that her line is tell him. And she can't think of anything like it's so perfect. It's right? so perfect. Um, no notes. And that feels real too, right? Like sometimes you want to say something that's like, great and cool and it's just like eh, i don't know but the great thing about sarah michelle geller and the character of buffy is it's like she ends up sounding so cool in her sort of like a uh, decision to like uh you know uh give up any sense of coolness she's like i can't muster coolness right now i have too much on my mind which in turn is so cool that's the great thing about buffy like the effort it's like she doesn't have to make any effort because it's so intrinsic to who she is and when i say she i mean buffy and smg yeah, no, yes, I totally agree with that. Um, she goes, she immediately encounters the Anointed One, and, you know, she had heard Miss Calendar and Giles discussing that the Anointed One did survive, it's a child, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what is the, in the writer's room, it's like, just what was the deal with the Anointed One? And, like, they clearly abandon, and then it's like they made the weird decision to bring him back in season two only to abandon him straight away, but it's just like, I didn't get what they were going for with that. Like, was the idea of, like, was it supposed to be sort of like, this is a creepy child? Because he doesn't really come off that creepy. Um, it's just very strange. I, I've never really understood the purpose of the Anointed One. Right, because... And he and like he's a big part of the prophecy, but like he doesn't really factor into any of it. Like it feels like if we cut him out, then it would have been fine, right? Right. Yeah, it's weird. Um, and you're right too. They could have just not brought him back in season two. Like it didn't matter. Right. They did that with Cordelia with season four. So. Yeah. 
so then we get she's like approaching going through the tunnels we see all the like the imagery of her and i do like the imagery of her and the anointed one walking together yes um we get the scoobies they're like talking about what's going on um i noticed that willow like she's kind of like why is she here about miss calendar which she later does about anya oh that's interesting yeah that's true yeah i was like i wonder if it's just like because i could see it playing into willow's character like you know how like there are some like gays where it's like you're you come into the job and there's like that one other gay and then they're like <gasps> and they're like not nice to you i was like mm, i wonder if it's like kind of like that dynamic mm. because she's used to being the only non-slayer lady of, in the scoobies Anyway, but so Xander makes the decision to like go find Angel and I, I'm so, especially after reading your book, and I will say that when I met Nicholas Brendan, he also told me um, that he did not like David Boreanaz. Um, I'm curious what you think of this scene, because I really hate everything Xander says to Angel, even though his heart is in the right place and it's, he does the right thing, like, after the fact, it's like, yes, that was right. He should have gone to him, blah, blah, blah. But, like, he's just so annoying with Angel. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's like, again, going back to that, like, reminder that this is, like, a 16-year-old boy who is dealing with... It's like putting myself in that position. If I had a major crush on my friend and had to go and confront and, like, I guess, like, band together with my crush, the person that my crush is in love with, like, there's layers there that make me understand Xander's behavior. So it's like, yes, I think he comes off very annoyingly, but it's like justifiable, justifiable annoyingness, if you will. Um, in that it's like, I don't want to have to work with you, but you're all I have right now. So That's yeah, I, I, I understood why it was that way. Um, but they have a interesting relationship. I mean, I was gonna say off screen, but also on screen. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, it made sense that they would want to team up together. But also, too, it's like, why it, now thinking about it? So it's like, so it's Xander went to Angel to be like, we have to, like, why the two of them together? And why wouldn't Angel? So a thing, especially in season one, is Angel's pretty useless. Like, he doesn't yeah. do much. Like, in the, the series premiere, he shows up and is like, they're coming wink wink i'm gonna leave and it's like you could just say oh the master's going to rise you should do something about it like right exactly um so i don't understand why he wouldn't have wanted to already be going there to make sure she was okay you know what i mean like right shouldn't be xander being like we need to help um but so yeah so we get then they're traveling buffy's meeting the master and i noticed this time too that so I had just rewatched Nightmares because, I mean, I haven't been recording for every episode of the 25th, but I'm doing like TikTok reviews. So I've been mm-hmm. having to like rewatch. Her encounter with the master here at first is a lot like her encounter with him in Nightmares. Um, like the way he's like silently moving from place to place and is like behind her and then like up close, like it feels very much like her nightmare come to life, um, which is like just something I noticed this time. And it's weird that, like, in their first confrontation, she's not... They kind of make her, like, not as... She got her boost of confidence, but then it's kind of, like, it deflates, right? When she, like, is confronted. Right. So, yeah, like, she even shoots, and she, like, you know, he catches arrow and is, like, nice shot. He kind of is very... 
a thing I do like is when he needs to be intimidating villain, he is intimidating villain, like kind of the same with Lori, where like they're wacky until they need to be the villain. And then they're like, I'm going to fuck you up. Um, Which is like very reminiscent too of uh, the mayor. Cause I remember like the first time I saw the mayor being like evil, evil, I was like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like kind of like, Oh, okay. They like are a threat. Um, right. So we, we then get like, is it pre- it's pretty quickly that he like subdues her right here yes. yeah um he bites her throws her in the pool like the pool of water and that like thud feels very brutal when she like goes to her knees and then collapses in um and the thing i was thinking about with this finale including willow and cordelia walking into like their bloodied classmates it feels like this is kind of the last of like horror movie-esque violence that we get on the show mm-hmm. Because even in, like, season seven, it's a big deal when Buffy loses to the Turrican and she has, like, you know, some blood on her, like, chin and then a bruise on her forehead. Because we really hadn't seen her, like, bloodied up for a long time. Yeah, I mean, the best example I can think of outside that one is Sunday in the season four premiere. But even then, she wasn't, like... I mean, that was just her arm, really. Right. And then the scar on her head. The one that she had when she taped MTV's Fanatic. Because I always remember that scar from Fanatic. (laughs) I love that you remember that. Yeah, because she did, like, a whole round of MTV press with the fake scar. (laughs) Um, So the master tells her he likes her dress, which is the same thing Willow told her. Um, I love that little through line. He escapes. Yes. Yes. Um. And then Xander and Angel come upon her. And we've been talking about this in our Angel coverage, too. They really... And it, I don't care. I don't know how you feel. I don't care. They play so fast and loose with the vampire stuff. Right? Because it's like, he's like, oh, I don't have any breath. But literally, next season, Spike is smoking a cigarette. Like, Right. Right, 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 right. And, and there's how, a like, lot of times in season... I think it's four or five when like Spike is clearly like in direct sunlight inside, especially when he, when they're at Giles's house in the daytime where it's like in the beginning, they do like the whole, he comes out with the tarp. So yes, they're very fast and loose. I would say, and I write about this extensively in the book and I know many Buffy people have uh, spoken and written about this, but it's just like, I'll never understand the fact that she's dead, but she can be given CPR and come back. So it's like, she's not dead. She might have been passed out. So it's just a little confusing to me um, how this all worked. Because she was, wasn't like mystically brought back. She just was given CPR. I was specifically going to ask because I laughed out loud in your book. I think you put that in the parentheses of like, that's not how that works. But that's a conversation for another time. Like, it really is like, mm, that doesn't quite make sense. Right. It's always really confused me. Um, because the solution could have been so simple where it's like, they have some sort of spell or they discover an amulet or there's something that brings her back or blah, blah, blah. But it's like, oh no, just give her CPR. And it's like, (laughs) how does CPR, because I get it that she drowned, but she also in theory, and this is the other thing, and I I mentioned this in the book too, but we're given all this lore about like Slayer blood is supposed to like be the best tasting. And the master literally just like has a quick little bite and is like done. And it's like, he's been living in like underground there you know, a sense, I don't know if he's been starving. I mean, they've been bringing him kills, but like, I just would imagine like, if you've been on a diet of, you know, McDonald's and right. someone comes along and they're like, you know, here's, I don't know, the, the best of the best. Here's, um, 
via Corota, for instance, it's like, I would be like, okay, well, I'm going to finish this meal before I go above ground, but that's just me. <laughs> I don't even know what the fuck that reference is, Evan. <laughs> well, it's a really good restaurant that I like in New York City. <laughs> but yes, no, it is like, shouldn't he finish eating? I mean, we're, we're happy he did not, but it is like, hmm, he probably should have like drank, like drained her the way they would any right. other victim. But yeah. Um, but I do love like, so we get that's going on while like Miss Calendar and Willow are finding out the vampires aren't going to their dance. It's they're coming to the library. Cordelia drives through the same wall the mayor bursts through because so good. they love destroying a set. Um, and again, I love that Cordelia just immediately is like, get in. I'm here to help. Let's go. There's not like she's not making like quippy, shitty remarks to them. She's just like, yes, I'm going to save you. Get in my car. Um and I like the, like, Cordelia's there to help. Xander resuscitates her. And I do love the confidence she comes back with, right? Like, the way Buffy is immediately like, oh, I have to go kill the master now. Like, I don't know. I just, it, that, like, all the other stuff aside, even, like, I don't know that it would ever work in a later season than playing the theme song while she's, like, getting her confidence back. But it love. works right yeah exactly it's like so bizarre it's such a bizarre choice um but it's such a full-throated choice that it just works i think one of the great advantages of buffy as a television series so often is that like it makes choices and leans all the way in on the choice that no matter how bizarre it may seem it's sort of like well you can't help but be like i it's like kind of like people that you know respect the hustle it's like i respect the choice yeah yeah that's yeah it's like okay we're committing all right great yeah we're doing full-on theme song here okay great work yeah (laughs) um she's i i even think she looks good in her like back to life like wet hair wet dress look like right yeah she she just uh she's so good um she goes, she's heading towards the library. She tells Xander and Angel she's going to go face the master. He's on the roof. Um, the Scoobies are being attacked by... I mean, I was thinking about this because I just recently, you know, finished season seven. We get this Hellmouth monster, and we get it again in season three in the Zeppo. And then never again, and it's just kind of like, they go into the Hellmouth, and there's... It's just kind of like a rocky Lord of the Rings-looking place. Right, and it's like, why didn't we get that again at all in season seven? I feel like they really didn't take advantage. I mean, don't get me started on season seven, but it's like they didn't really take advantage of the fact that, you know, you have this moment in the premiere of season seven where it's like, oh my God, look at these blueprints. Like, it's directly, the library is now, what is it? The library is now the principal's office? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you think we get something of like this hell beast coming out of the principal's office or you know at least putting a tentacle out or something but nothing just one little tentacle <laughs> yeah <laughs> tickling um, robin wood's chin <laughs> uh so then uh we get buffy confronting the master on the roof and i feel like great camera ev- work right ev- everything about all the stuff on the roof is so iconic all of her every line she delivers to him the like I may be dead, but I'm still pretty, which is more than I can say for you. I failed the written. You have fruit punch mouth. All of them are like fucking iconic lines, right? And like lines that like not even just like fans like you and I remember, but I feel like a casual Buffy fan remembers like those lines, right? Yeah, you want this scene to be like 10 times as long. Um, I want like the August Osage County cut of this scene because (laughs) it just really feels like 
It's so fun. And she has a completely different energy, uh, the likes of which we've never seen before from the character. And it's exciting as the viewer because it's like you as a viewer are sure of the fact that she will win. Yes, right. And it's that's sure. And that's like, that's the thing I fucking love about this show. And like, I mean, my mother, who is 76, always like, we'll still talk about Buffy. And that's like her favorite thing about it is that like, oh, we get like this woman who is confident she will beat this bad guy. Um, and that's like enjoyable to watch, right? Like it's enjoyable. Totally. Like you feel her confidence. You watch her like, you know, not she's not just like talking shit. She's like backing it up. She's confident for a reason because she's going to win and she does. Um, and there's no point, even when she does the hypnosis and like he does the hypnosis and brings her in. That's when she like almost pretends and then she just like says you have for punch mouth and says like save the hypnosis crap for tourists. Like this is peak confident Buffy and the Buffy that like is the reason we stand, right? Totally. Um, and then she pretty quickly, you know, throws him through the skylight. He lands on the broken piece of wood. And I I I always wonder, what do you think if this was like they weren't thinking about it or it was on purpose that like the master does have a skeleton and no one else ever does. Oh, interesting. I feel like it wasn't a choice, but it became one in the lore. Like, I feel like they just in that moment, they were, they were like, let's just have there be bones. But then I, my sense is they were like, well, that, you know, in later seasons, like they were like, well, that would be too complicated. Um, But I did just want to say real quick, I really do like how quick this fight is. Like, it's just kind of like one and done because I don't think you needed an epic battle here. This was like a verbal battle kind of in its own way. But it's like, I think part of the reason why um, the fight scene with Faith in season three hits the way it does is because of like how prolonged that fight is because it's so earned. Like you want to see these two go to toe to toe. Whereas with the master, when it's sort of like, we were already told what's going to happen. Buffy will die. The master will win. And now we flip the script. So it's like, okay, script flipped. Great. So then Buffy will kill the master. So let's just have her kill the master. Right. It's like, we didn't need them exchanging blows. So I really, I like how efficient this is. I, you like her efficiency of her killing the bad guy. I like that. Yes. <laughs> She's got to get to the dance. Like It's true. And you, you are right. We didn't need it, right? We didn't need eh, it. Like, I don't know. We saw the master like kind of like kill her, quote unquote, whatever. And like, I don't know. So it's like, and now she's confident. Now she's going to fucking kill him. And we, I feel like that also builds on the fact that like, the only reason Angelus works is because he's her boyfriend, because now she's like, she can kill any vampire and like, we're done with that. Right. And it's like, it has to be Angelus, Spike and Drusilla, like a trio, not just like one random bad vampire because she wouldn't be pressed about that. Exactly. Um, And that's what the show does well of building. Like, you know, that's why eventually we get the mayor and his like giant snake form and glory and whatever. And I, 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 all the, to build upon your efficiency comment it's also like then the episode's over right it's like she goes down they're all like oh you killed him well well," and she you know i even like that she's still confident and she like just looks at the skeleton and is like "Ugh, loser um she's like you know we save the world i say we party and i do love the last beat of like angel saying he really likes her dress and she's like yeah 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 like so good so good um And I think, like, there's definitely a reason, and this is, like, if you needed one scene to be, like, why do so many, like, queer folks love Buffy? I feel like this, like, end eight minutes is, like, a really good reason 
case for why, right? Yeah. Well, especially to this idea of like, we just saved the bad guy, let's go party, which is like so quintessentially Buffy, which is that like, now that like we've taken care of like the saving the world, we need to appease the teens in us that want to go and have a memorable prom night, even though we're sophomores and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, <laughs> but so I just appreciate the fact that it's not like, oh my God, aren't you guys wiped? Like, let's go to bed. It reminds me of like those Sex in the City scenes where like they meet in the diner at night afterwards to sort of like debrief about things. It's like, this is the Buffy version of that, which is that like, we don't just save the world and then disband. We have to save the world. And then our version of a postmortem is either going to the bronze or in this instance, going to the prom. You know, and also, I know I keep going back to this, just as like angels fresh in my mind because I've been marathoning recordings for it. Literally at the end of Angel episode two, it's like begins with them talking about how they should go out. They like, you know, finish whatever they need to finish. And Angel's like, you know what? Let's go out. And Cordelia and Doyle are like, nah, let's go to bed. And I feel like what you just said very much shows the differences between the shows. It's like, they're trying to be like, look, no, they're adults. So they're like, you know, going to go home. And this is like, no, let's fucking go party because like we're teenagers. And, but I mean, also I felt like that's a very queer thing too. Right. Being like, all right, now let's go get drinks. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Evan, what is your uh, favorite? I'm, I mean, I feel like I know the answers to these. What is your favorite outfit of the episode? <laughs> I mean, I feel like I can't not say the prom dress. Yeah. But, well, yeah, I guess the prom dress. Yeah. Okay. I mean, how many outfits are there? There aren't, like, she's got the school. Yeah, this isn't a very outfit-heavy episode. Yeah, and I mean, that it's, it's just, it's just like, her in the leather jacket with the dress is, I feel like, um, did you see the movie Ready or Not? Yes, of course. So, like, I remember uh, one of my, one of my regulars recommending it to me just for the sheer fact of she was like, you will love the Buffy vibes that she gives off of her and like her wedding dress with like the guns and like it's very Buffy. And it is. And I feel like I'm trying to think if there's like other things that did it first, but it feels like Buffy kind of like made that like almost blending the two of like a prom dress with like your fighting jacket, like a, mm. a look for like heroes. Um, yeah. What's your uh, favorite scene? Uh, the scene in the, in the library with Giles and Angel and Buffy. I, Although the the rooftop is a, is a close second. I I'm same but reverse. The rooftop and then the close second is the scene with uh, Giles, Angel, and Buffy. Um, Evan and I don't know that I even prepped you for this, so if you don't have an answer, that's totally fine. What do you think Dawn would have been doing in this episode? Oh, that's interesting. I feel like Dawn would have been on the bed watching Buffy get ready uh, for prom and and then Dawn would have wanted to figure out some way in which she could come and then had to be scolded by Buffy and be like, this is, <laughs> you're a kid, this is an adult thing. Yeah, she definitely would have been like asking her about prom, like, ooh, do you have a boyfriend? Like, who are you yeah. going to meet there? Like, what are you going to be doing? Um, and I feel like she would have maybe been like, if we had her meet Angel, she would have been asking about Angel, but other than that, she would have been asking about Xander or something. Um, and uh, what grade do you give this episode? Is it letter grade? Yeah. I would give it an A. Yeah, same. A. A plus, actually. Um, yeah, I fucking, I love this episode, and I feel like, I know people rag on season one, and I don't think it's bad by any means, but this is like, the best and like shows you what the show will be moving forward. Um, so yeah, I just love this episode and I don't revisit season one 
that often, but I'll revisit this episode. I really like season one. I think it's a very different show. I think the thing about Buffy that I've discovered is it's like, there's just, when you say Buffy, I almost think of it in the same way I would like the real world, which is like the real world New Orleans is not the same as the real world Hawaii because totally different shows, but under the same banner. And with Buffy, it's like, I just like every season has a very different look and feel and hairstyle and where the characters are at and all of these things. And so I think that, Certainly season one is like not the most memorable season and it's certainly finding its footing. And obviously it's shorter than all the rest, which I think is going to give it an immediate demerit. Um, But I think on the whole, it's like it knew what it wanted to be. The characters are very much established and it lays so much of the groundwork to allow season two to be what it is because it takes care of so much business in season one. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, And I think that's an important factor is the characters are pretty fully formed. Like they're there. There's no like complete rewrites of like, oh, we're going to have it do this or whatever. Because even on Angel, they do that the second episode. Like the first episode, the building they use as like the evil vampires enterprise is then Wolfram and Hart in later episodes. Like it's the same fucking building. Um, And I don't feel like Buffy would have done that. (laughs) Agreed. All right, Evan. uh, Where can everyone find you? You can find me on Instagram at Evan Ross Katz, and you can check out, I have two podcasts, one Shut Up Evan, which features interviews with celebrities. And then I have a podcast called Drop Your Buffs, which is Slayer Fest 98, but for Survivor. <laughs> um, thank you for joining me, Evan. And thank you all for listening. If you like Slayer Fest 98, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. If you like Slayer Fest 98, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can find us on social media at SlayerFestX98. Uh, you can support us on Patreon. We're going through Harley Quinn Season 2 and What If Season 1. And uh, if you want to follow me, I am at Carlos. And this was our 25th anniversary coverage of Buffy Season 1. Evan, I couldn't have picked a better person to close it out with. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'll see you all next time. Bye.